This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener, we're so glad that you can be with us. Uh, For the next hour, we will take people's questions as you've been studying maybe a text and you're uncertain as to its meaning or its application uh, for you and your life and ministry, family, or church. If we can be of help by God's grace, we'll do the best we can. All you need to do is pick up the phone, call us again. The local number is 843-525-1859. Or you can call us toll-free at our 877-EXCHANGE, and that's the call letters WAGP, 877-WAGP980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. When you call... Uh, we always give preference to live callers, um, but if you don't want to go on the air, you can simply dictate your question, and we're happy to receive it that way as well. All right, Rick, uh, let's go ahead, and we'll jump in with both feet and get rolling here. All right, Pastor Kay from Beaufort starts us off this morning wanting to know, what is heaven like for the deceased baby in the womb? Well, it's a, it's a great question, and you begin with an affirmation that there is a, an assumption, and it's biblically accurate, that for a small child to die, uh, they go to heaven. The Bible doesn't give what we might call an age of accountability, and God in his wisdom does not do that. I think if God said, well, the age is 12, some parents would not get serious with their children until they were 11. Uh, so it's different for different children, I'm sure. But Scripture is clear on a number of passages that when a small baby dies, they go to heaven. And of course, since life begins at the moment of conception, uh, the Scripture is clear and affirms that even uh, babies that maybe a lady has miscarried or a baby that was even the product of an abortion or a young child that dies goes directly into heaven. Uh, Jesus taught this in a number of places. Uh, Probably one central passage that would be helpful to you would be uh, Matthew chapter 18. Uh, The disciples were having a discussion as to who's the greatest in the kingdom, and he called a child to himself and set him, the child before them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. So there he sets a child before him. In another occasion, different setting, he takes a baby in his arms, uh, and then he reminds us that whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Uh, So he never uses an illustration with error. For a child to die without having, quote-unquote, called upon the name of Christ in faith, uh, and then to send that child to hell, then Jesus would be using an erroneous illustration to teach the truth. But throughout the Word of God, the Scripture is clear. He only uses truth to teach truth. And then he gives a very 
um, important warning that I think is ignored in our day, that whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and drowned in the depth of the sea. Uh, God hates what is happening to children in America, and sometimes it's uh, being done in our government school system where they're being programmed to believe that wrong is right and right is wrong. Uh, that's very sad. Sometimes it's being done in the family itself. You know, I just before COVID, they had all these uh, library uh, gatherings where they would have transgender and drag queens and all kinds of people come in and read to little children. And why a parent would think that this is a good thing is beyond me. God hates these kinds of things, and he's not going to put up with it forever. And then uh, in verse 10 of the same chapter, he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that there are angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So then he affirms in verse 14, So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. So God gives first an affirmation, and this is just one of several scriptures, and I might just give an advertisement here. We offer a course at Community Bible Church. It's called Back to Basics. It's been called Discovery Class on Sunday morning. Uh, Right now, it's being taught on Wednesday nights under basic discipleship. And there are basically 21 handouts. Sometimes a handout takes three to four weeks to get through But these are the nuts and bolts of the Christian life on how to walk with God. In one of the sessions, uh, it's in the apologetic section that I'm redoing all these handouts. I've been teaching this material for over 30 years, really 40 years uh, since I went into the ministry in 1978. I started seeing all these new college students come to faith in Christ, and I noticed they all had basically the same questions. So I wrote a discipleship course really having followed up on thousands of new believers. And uh, in either case, um, one of the questions in the apologetic section deals with what happens to children when they die. Now, what is it like for a child the moment they die? Well, Scripture, in some ways, does not give us a full picture. You know, there was a popular country song done years ago, uh, Jesus had a, has a rocking chair, and the basic thrust of it was... Um, you know, uh, in fact, I met the family that actually wrote the song, and uh, we were on vacation up in the mountains of Tennessee back in the uh, early 1990s, and uh, she had had a miscarriage, and her the theme of the song was, well, Jesus has a rocking chair. He's going to take care of that baby, and indeed he will now. Does the baby go to heaven as a child? It's possible, uh, but I think it's doubtful, um, because when we get to heaven at the rapture, uh, we will be caught up in the twinkling of an eye in a moment. Our lives will be changed, and we'll receive an eternal body. And there does not appear to be uh, age differences, not to mention that those uh, recipients who are in heaven of the grace of God, those recipients of God's grace, are all able to sing and worship the living God. So uh, a baby that was in nine weeks gestation, obviously, would be difficult to do that. So it appears that they receive their, you know, ultimate um, resurrected state. Obviously, the resurrection has not yet happened. Uh, So in that sense, they await the resurrection of the body. Now, someone might say, well, God allows them to grow up in heaven until until they get their resurrected body. Again, it's speculation. 
of the scripture is silent, but what we do know, it appears to indicate that that's not the case, that they grow up in heaven, uh, but they are given that intermediate body because all who are in heaven are wearing robes. And so, you know, a, a baby that's, you know, six months into gestation, again, it's, it, it's uh, not too complicated, but we will, we will see. We have much to look forward to and to find out in the days ahead. Great question, though. I appreciate that. Uh, let's go to a live call. They're waiting. Indeed, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And as you mentioned, we do have a live caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, gentlemen. Hey, thanks for calling. What can we do? The Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 26 through through 29. It says that, For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself. My question is, since Jesus Christ is God, he's the eternal one, so why should God the Father give life to the Son if he, Christ himself, is the life? And see, Christ said he's the resurrection and the life, and he thinks he always existed. Why was it necessary for the Father to give life to the Son? And also, where it says also, uh, um, so where it says in verse 29, saying, He shall come forth, they that have done good and unto resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto resurrection of damnation. I always thought there is none righteous, so why should we go at the resurrection of life based on our doing good? Where the Bible said there's none good, no, not, not wrong, not righteous, no, not one. So we're saved by grace through faith, not by being good. So we're not having eternal life based on our goodness. So why does that say doing done good unto the resurrection of life? Well, these are great questions. And by the way, I guess this is an opportunity for me to do another commercial because I covered this very text in our uh, basic discipleship course uh, that we're offering on Wednesday nights. We are just on the second of 21 handouts, and we've just done part three of four parts to the second handout. But with that said, um, you know, remember, uh, Christ incarnated himself. And so at the incarnation, everything changed. He took on our humanity. And so he lived in dependence upon the Father. And obviously, God the Father does not have a human body because the Bible says that he is spirit. But sometimes God describes, you know, himself even in human terms, the eyes of the Lord, the arm of the Lord, and so forth. And um, you see the Ancient of Days in the book of Daniel taking his seat. And here we see a picture of the Father really ultimately giving a promise to the Son, which was the affirmation and declaration of his deity. Remember, the Scripture says in Romans 1, 4, he was declared. It's a word that means to announce. He was announced, so to speak, that he was God the Son through the resurrection. And so he's speaking, I think, here in view of the resurrection. And because he lives, he will have authority as the resurrected Lord, which will declare that he is God, which did, of course, he's the one who split time down the middle. Therefore, he has authority to judge. Remember, all judgment is given to God, the Scripture affirms, and yet the Father entrusts judgment to the Son. Why? Because he's God. How do we know? Because he was raised from the dead. And again, each member of the Godhead, interestingly, is credited with the resurrection. 
Uh, Christ himself said, you know, no one takes my life away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it back up again. Uh, The Spirit is credited with raising him from the dead in the book of Ephesians, and here an affirmation of the Father. But he says in verse 25, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of Man. Why? Because he's God. All judgment's been entrusted to him. Um, And with that said, uh, he makes this incredible statement. Do not marvel, an hour is coming, and those will come forth, some who did the good, deeds is italicized in the uh, NASB, but that's the essence of a good or good works or good deeds. But the Greek text says those will come forth, those who did the good to resurrection of life, those who committed the evil or evil deeds, again in italics, to a resurrection of judgment. Now, this is not a contradiction of what he's just said in verse 24, where he said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Again, how is one saved? By grace through faith. He affirmed that already in John 3, John 4, and the two encounters he had with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. But as the Reformers used to teach, uh, we're saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves, or you could say the faith that saves, but faith doesn't really save, is never alone. Um, Grace saves. Faith is the channel that receives that grace. So the scripture is clear that when you are born again, your life changes such that Jesus can describe ultimately two kinds of resurrection. It's not so much the time of the resurrection as the kind of resurrections that he is affirming here, because we know, for instance, the resurrection of the the righteous is separated by a thousand years when the resurrection of the lost happens at the end of the millennial reign of the Messiah. But there will be two kinds of people, ultimately, who are resurrected. Those who did the good, good in what sense? Good in that they were born again, and when you're born again, your life changes. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Everything's become new. Uh, That's why Jesus can say in Matthew 7 of people who said they were believers, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Again, that's the other side of it. Those were people who said they were saved, but Jesus said, I never knew you. Not I once had a relationship with you, because that's the essence of eternal life, that you might know him, the only true God in Christ whom you have sent. But I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you ever. And that is evidence of the fact that you practice the lifestyle of sin. So um, he's describing those who are saved, who have the fruit of salvation. And that's why he can say in that same chapter, Matthew 7, you will know them by their fruits. No fruit, no conversion, no genuine faith in the death, burial, and resurrection. And, but a true saving faith produces a changed life. And this is going to be the shock of the ages when people who think they are saved and say, well, I'm going to heaven, I've been saved by grace, and I can live however I want because I'm going there. I might not have much when I get there, is it is argued, but I'll be there because I'm saved by grace. And yet they have no changed life, no Uh, evidences of conversion. What is interesting is the Bible teaches in 1 John 5, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. And again, we cover this uh, once again in the first handout of basic discipleship. 
What does he mean so that you may know that you have eternal life? Uh, Some think, well, you could be saved and not know it. That's not what he's saying. In the context of 1 John, he's saying there are some people who think they are saved, but they're really not saved. So I've written the things that I've written to you because he goes through five or six evidences of general conversion. And he's saying, if these things are true of you, and one of those things is the same thing that you're raising here from John chapter 5, and that is a changed life, that uh, little children let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteous is righteous. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. So again, he's not talking about perfection because he's affirmed in chapter 1 that we all sin and to say we don't sin, we're calling God a liar. James says we all stumble in many ways. But he is saying that there is a new direction. Not perfection, but new direction. And if there's no new direction, then there's been no new life. And so the Scripture is consistent all the way through uh, whatever book you're dealing with. Good question. Let's go to the next one. And you do draw a distinction between, as you would sometimes say from the pulpit, singed but saved, as in 1 Corinthians 3.13, right? Yeah, there are, there are some believers, but even those believers that Paul addresses, because probably the most carnal church in all the New Testament would be the Corinthian church, and yet he can even affirm in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that there were definite changes that had transpired in their lives. And that's why he opens the chapter with these words. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So there were evidences, even in this carnal church, of genuine conversion. But um, unfortunately, at the judgment seat of Christ, which is not the judgment of the lost, but it's the judgment of the just, where not our sin is judged. That's been taken care of if you've received Jesus as Lord, but your service is judged. And for some people, there's going to be tremendous loss because of time they wasted, uh, service that they did attempt to do, but in their own power for their own motivations and not the glory of God and so on. So yes. And again, that's covered in the discovery class uh, on the session dealing with uh, developing an eternal perspective. And so this class, uh, we're calling it Basic Discipleship, that's being done on Wednesday nights is really fundamental. It's the nuts and bolts of how to grow up in Christ. All right, very good. We've got two different questions that have a similar bent to them, so I'm going to read them all to you, and then um, maybe you can address them. Sue from Beaufort writes, how, in your opinion, do you see the current unrest and violence ending? Do you think there will come a time especially for police officers to start using deadly force. Then Gina from Savannah writes, how should we as Christians respond to the rampant corruption displayed by government leaders and widespread lawlessness destroying our cities across the nation? I know we most certainly should exercise our right to vote and try to elect leaders who most closely align with our biblical worldview, but how involved should we be in actively fighting against the evil that's so quickly overtaking our country? What measures can and should we take? Well, these are fantastic questions, and some of them have come through in one form or another. Uh, You know, the big issue that's out there right now is should we defund the police? You know, what's so sad is we've got this violence that is just exploding, 
in major American cities, and it just doesn't seem to be ending. And look, I no one would debate that we have a need for police reform. There's 800,000 police officers in the United States. You know, I, I don't know what percentage are corrupt, but it's a very, very small amount. Um, it's just like those who choose to serve as Marines or in the Air Force or the Army or the Navy. Uh, there have always been some corrupt guys. You know, one guy who went into a naval base and shot a lot of innocent people some years back. There's always corrupt people. And so we will always uh, need reform as long as we have sinful people in the world who are given a place of some kind of authority, be they the police or the military. But while, you know, we may need police reform in some aspects, I think it's naive and I think it's grossly against Scripture to think about defunding the police especially in the environment we're living in. We're living in an environment of chaos where, you know, to dismantle the police would be like, you know, dismantling the fire department during fire season in California. It's just absolutely insane. And with riots going on and they're not stopping, you've got these mayors who are trying to placate, um, you know, these people who are just terrorists. Um, It's just crazy. And it doesn't matter what color folks are. You know, black people are being robbed and murdered, and they need police protection too. I mean, what happens to some of the, especially some of these innocent children, it's just so heartbreaking. You know, an infant gets shot, a eight-year-old gets shot, and, and black people are being robbed and murdered, and they need protection. Uh, it, this all started in Minneapolis, and, you know, nobody's debating that that was a wicked thing that happened. But to call for defunding the police, you know, is only going to make the nation uh, unsafe and it's going to create tremendous insecurity. Why, why do we have police? Why do we have army? Because man is basically evil and fallen. But to say that because we have some corrupt police officers would be like saying, well, we need to get rid of all doctors and nurses because they don't have 100 percent success rate in making people well. So let's get rid of them all. That's just, again, sheer lunacy, and it's dangerous. You don't get rid of an entire police force because you have some people who have abused their authority. You deal with people who have abused their badge, and you hold them accountable. And uh, and if you've been given a badge and a gun to enforce the law, uh, then you have to abide by the law that God, that the, the county, the country, the city that you work in under God has given you authority to enforce. Um, Look, with no blue line of authority, we will have total anarchy in the United States. And people are saying, what do you do with this money? Well, you know, we need social agents who will come and minister to people. And okay, so you dial 911. I'm sorry, there's no one to take your call today due to a lack of personnel or or you call 911 and they say, you know, I'm sorry, we can't take your call, but if you want a social worker, press 1. If you want someone to come and hold your hand, press 2. Look, if someone's breaking into your house, you want a police officer. And we need to be teaching our children in the next generation to respect the police. And not to do that is a terrible, 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 terrible thing. And, you know... The second half of this question is, look, we we all agree black lives matter. Um, We're not saying that's never been true. In God's eyes, blacks are equal in value to whites, browns, red, yellow, and everything in between. Racism just is evil, 
And it's a mark of someone who's unregenerate. Someone who has been truly, genuinely born again and grown a little in Christ won't be a, a, a racist. Now, while the phrase all lives matter is true, I think it fails to address the issue at hand. And so the Black Lives Matter movement is very different from the fact that black lives matter. And so the question becomes, should a Christian, you know, go and march in a Black Lives Matter movement? And I would say absolutely not. Why? Because of what the Black Lives Matter movement stands for. And if you go online and you uh, read their uh, statement of beliefs, you pull it up at Wikipedia, um, you know, some of the things that they affirm in terms of they believe are absolutely horrendous. Look, just remember, it started by three women, one who's a transgender, one who's an asexual, and the other who's a lesbian. And when they put down the, the things that they stand for, they are against heterosexual marriage. They, they say it is wrong to say that all people are created heterosexual. So that, that's wrong. They affirm the transgender LGBTQIA lifestyle, that whole thing. You know, that's just sheer lunacy. They're atheistic. They're Marxist. So for a Christian to march in a Black Lives Matter movement is really either disobedient or he's ignorant. That's not to say that our voice should not be heard. It should be heard. And we should, as of all people, speak against racism and do what we can to protect any aspect of society. But, you know, here we, we, we've got these horrendous things going on in our country. And, you know, people wanting to uh, fund this and fund that or defund this and defund that. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's contrary to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 for the believer to participate. Let me just read that text and I'll let you uh, ponder this. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? So there was a pastor in D.C. who was advocating that we should be out there marching in the Black Lives uh, Movement. No, that's wrong. Uh, you are giving endorsement to the fundamental principles that they are affirming. Uh, lesbianism, transgenderism, asexualism, uh, denial of what God says about marriage, or what harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Absolutely nothing. Um, So God says, I will dwell among them, speaking of his people, and walk among them, and I will be their God. They will be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So our voice needs to be heard, and it needs to be heard in a unified way, but it needs to be heard with fellow believers. We do not mix the gospel with an ideology that opposes the gospel. And the Black Lives Matter movement definitively, absolutely opposes the gospel. Just go online, read the actual statements. This is what we stand for. These are our objectives. And how could any born-again Christian who even knows a small amount of Scripture give affirmation to the things that they are affirming? But, you know, you are doing that when you participate with them. So, um, again, 
of all people who should speak out against racism. It's the people of God. But how we do it becomes very, very critical. All right. I just got off the phone with a listener, and they were grateful for your speaking truth. They appreciate your being forthright from the pulpit as well as in this particular venue, uh, the the Bible line. And uh, she uh, wanted to bless you for, for all that you do. Richard S. from how do you pronounce that? That's, that's White, Whitensville. Whitensville, yeah. Massachusetts, uh, writes, I have so much doubt about what the gospel is. Ever since I learned about lordship salvation and easy believism, I've been torn. I feel really lost and am not confident at all about what exactly a person has to do in order to have Jesus Christ's work on the cross credited to their account. Most agree that it is faith that you need, but I feel like people interpret the word faith so differently that they end up talking about different things. What exactly do I need to do in order to have what he did credited to me? What exactly needs to be my response to what Jesus accomplished? Well, remember, Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the use of the term gospel there is articular. Again, the word gospel is a somewhat of a religious word in our day. So when we speak of gospel music, we're speaking of typically Christian music. Whether it's theologically accurate or not, we're speaking of a Christian type of music. Well, the word gospel, euangelion, and its verb, euangelizo, um, either means good news or to preach the good news. And it is used in different contexts in the first century and even in the Bible itself. Uh, good news can be any kind of good news. You could say, I'm a, I've am got good news. Really, what's your good news? The war is over. That might be the gospel of someone serving in the military. Someone else might say, I've got good news. Really, what's your good news? We're going to have a baby. That might be the good news of a young married couple. It just meant good news. When you put the word the in its articular in the Greek New Testament, the gospel in Romans 1.16, it's not always articular. And so sometimes the word gospel is referring to a general kind of good news. But when it's articular, the gospel, it's referring to a specific good news. And there's no mystery as to what precisely the specific good news is that is the power of God for salvation. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, there it is, articular, which I preach to you, which also you received and which also you stand by which you're saved. Okay, fantastic. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So the gospel is the death, burial, and the resurrection. Now, it is true that uh, sometimes people cloud the gospel because they are often giving a knee-jerk reaction to the easy believism that I spoke of earlier, of people who say, I'm born again, but their life has never changed. So the question fundamentally becomes, why do I want Christ as my Savior? Remember, it says here, he died for our sins. The gospel that I delivered to you is of first importance, is that Christ died for our sins. In that statement alone, there's an acknowledgement that we are willing to call sin, sin. Uh, That's called that change of mind, repentance. And that's why Jesus could say, unless you repent, you perish. Now, does the word repent have to be in every gospel presentation? Obviously not, because if that were true, then the gospel of John that was inspired by the Spirit of God is erroneous. 
And the Gospel of John, interestingly, is the only book in all the New Testament that is written for a dual purpose of both believers and unbelievers. Now, we read a book like Romans, and we take someone through what we call the Romans road to convert them to Christ, and that's the power of God's Word. But Romans, remember, was written to born-again people, and it's to take them deeper and further in their apologetic to defend the truth of the gospel. But when you come to the end of John, right before the postscript of the resurrection appearance there on that beach, where same beach that Christ called them three-plus years earlier to be disciples, therefore many other signs, and the word is samion, which means a miracle with a message. There's different words for miracles in the Bible. This is a miracle with a message. And so John has seven miracles prior to the resurrection that he records, five that are unique to his gospel because he has a purpose in mind. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written for what reason? So that, here's the reason, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. So when we come to Christ, here in the Gospel of John, the word repent never once appears, yet it's implicit in all of the illustrations and all the explanations on what is necessary to become a Christian. So if someone comes to Jesus and says, you know, I want forgiveness, but I don't really want change, then they're really not calling sin, sin. Until we are willing to call sin for what it is, that it's wrong and it needs to be changed, then we are not yet in a position to receive forgiveness. So in that sense, repentance is implicit in the gospel itself, that when I come to Christ, and very often the Spirit of God puts his finger on an issue in our life. Now, I will say that sometimes uh, someone who is born again has a recurring sin, and that causes them to really wonder whether or not they've been saved, and they need to deal with that. You know, like I deal with men sometimes, just last week, a guy who is hooked on porn, I said, look, you've got a decision to make. If you're really born again, if you really are willing to call this sin an evil and needs to be changed, then you've got to, you know, um, show the steps that you have received Christ. Well, what do you mean? Well, that, that cell phone you got in your hand, you ever watch porn on it? Well, yeah. Well, what are you going to do about it? Well, you know, I it's a temptation, I admit. Well, what are you going to do about it? And I told him, I said, why don't you get a flip phone? Well, you know, I like to check my email during the day. You know, I bet your wife would be happy to check your email for you and call you every time something important comes through. See, if that's a source of temptation, you make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. And so very often, some people who are born again, you know, struggle with assurance because they haven't really taken the steps. They're not really serious. Either A, because they haven't been born again, or B, they, they're just toying with sin. And, you know, Jesus spoke about mortifying uh, the body, so to speak. If your hand causes you to stumble, then cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Now, if you pluck out your right eye, you still have your left eye as an inlet for sin. If you cut off your right hand, you still have your left hand. So his point was not to literally cut off your hand, but there has to be such a war and hatred against sin. And when that happens, I'm telling you, freedom comes. 
and there's an inner assurance that comes with the Spirit of God. But, you know, how serious are we? And you need to ask that. And some people aren't serious because they haven't been born again. So what do you have to do? You exercise genuine faith in the death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin. And if you really want forgiveness, then you want that sin changed, and you want to glorify God. The grace of God that brings you salvation teaches you to deny worldliness and godly desires and to live holy and righteously in the present age. And so you've got some decisions very often that one needs to make. That's a great question that he asked. Let's go to the next one. All right. Uh, William from Stephen City, Virginia, is uh, asking a question that all relates to the parable of the sower, which is found in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He writes, I know that conversion of sinful man is a faith moment where the unregenerate person becomes heartfelt because of the word and believes that they are a sinner in need of a savior and that Jesus provided that substitutionary propitiation for a sinful man through his death, burial, and resurrection. It's by faith alone in Christ alone that we are eternally saved by grace. So, back to the parable of the sower. My current personal, personal understanding is that when the seed is germinated for three of the four soils, that a believer's new life in Christ has begun. However, no fruit was evident in soils two and three and the believer will be lacking at the bema judgment of believers. Jesus follows by warning us to not put our light under a basket or under the bed. I believe this is a warning to rocky and thorny soil believers. The light under a bed is still a light, but it's not being useful. Can these rocky and thorny soil believers change their location to good soil during their life on earth and produce some increase instead of none? And can the church encourage believers stuck in bad soil to move into the good soil? Well, these are great questions. And uh, the parable of the sower found in the Synoptic Gospels is really an answer to a so-called dilemma, uh, the critical means to which to understand Matthew 13, where the parable of the soil is found, is to understand its context in Matthew 12. And in Matthew 12, Jesus deals with the whole issue of what we call the um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, I just recently dealt with, which we deal with in this course. We're teaching basic discipleships. We've already done seven lessons on it. They're all available at communitybiblechurch.us. And so because the nation officially rejects Jesus, and by that I mean not every Jew, but the leadership of the nation, the question becomes, well, God promised a kingdom for the Jewish people. And so what does that mean in light of the national unbelief? He came to his own, his own received him not. So as a general principle, his own received him not. But of course, on the day of Pentecost, everyone that's converted, in the first early weeks, there's, you know, some 30,000 plus people who are converted. Everyone is a Jew. So we can't say all Jewish people rejected Jesus because they did not. All of the apostles, of course, were Jews. But in 13, he basically deals with what we call the kingdom parables. And included in that is the, um, uh, the, the parable of the sower. Now, I think what you're doing is you're pressing the parable too hard. There's usually a single major lesson in every parable. And what Jesus is describing in Matthew 13 in these different parables is why are they in unbelief? What's the reason behind it? And one of the explanations he gives is found in the parable of the sower. Now, there was a, 
guy I knew, I don't even know if he's still alive, Patrick Morley, he wrote a book called The Man in the Mirror. And I was on uh, staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, and uh, I was the director of executive ministries in Dallas, and I forgot what city he was over. But he wrote this book for his Bible study. I think he might have been in New York City. And um, the basic thrust of the book is the first soil was an unbeliever, the next two soils were carnal Christians, and the third or the fourth soil was the spirit-filled Christian. And he actually got that from some Campus Crusade Bible studies, and he wrote a book on it. Well, that's just bad theology. Um, the point of the parable is that if someone has met Christ, they're going to bear fruit. And in one of the synoptics, it says 30, 60, 100-fold. Uh, so there will be fruit. There may be varying degrees and expressions of fruit, but there'll be fruit if there's conversion. And I think reading it in uh, all three Gospels is very, very helpful. What helps to elucidate a little bit the meaning of this parable is in the Lucan account. Now, the parable of the seed is this. Uh, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Soil number one, lost guy. Where a person can reach a point where they, in essence, uh, have crossed the line that they cannot cross back over. And that's a sad thing. And that's why we don't have forever to make a decision for Christ. And if someone's listening to me today and you say, well, I'm, I'm toying with this, and you keep putting it off, God says today is the day of salvation. Remind, rem, be remembered uh, of what Moses wrote, that my spirit shall not always uh, strive with you. There comes a point where... God stops striving with you. You don't come to Christ totally on your own, independently of God. You come to Christ because God first worked in your heart. There is none who seeks God, no, not one. I don't care if the child's four or if the person's 104. You cannot come to Christ apart from the Lord. Now, it might be that you cannot remember a time in your life because you were raised in a Christian home, maybe prayed for even in your mother's womb, that you would receive Jesus at an early age. But that's only in response to prayer and in response to the Spirit of God stirring your heart at a young age. But there can come a point where a person puts the final callus on the human heart where they cannot believe and be saved. And so the devil is given permission to snatch the seed. And that's a sad place to be. Uh, It's a very sad place to be. There was a time when uh, Princeton Seminary was actually Bible-believing. Um, they, they believed the scripture and there was a brother who, who taught there, a great theologian, Joseph Addison Alexander. And he wrote a little poem. There was a time we knew, we know not when a point we know not where that marks the destiny of men to glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. And if you cross that line, the devil is given permission to snatch the seed that you may not believe and be saved. God alone knows who those people are. And again, uh, there is a deathbed conversion in the Bible so that none will despair, but only one so that none will presume. Uh, But then he goes on, he gives a second soil. He says, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. And this is why I say it's helpful here to 
read Luke's account because he adds the phrase they believe for a while, but it's only intellectual. Every time you see the word believe in the Bible, context is critical. It's not always of genuine conversion. Now, typically when it's associated with the word in, uh, the, in the accusative case, it's in reference to genuine conversion. But there are people who believe intellectually, but they don't. Look, the demons believe, the scripture says, and tremble. You have um, Acts chapter 8, where Simon the sorcerer believed him, but he didn't believe in the Lord Jesus. And so he's described as an unbeliever, still fixed in his own sin and unbelief, in the bondage of iniquity, Peter will say. And so here he's describing someone who, you know, you share the gospel with them. They seem kind of excited. They go up like a rocket, but they come down like a rock. Uh, Why? Because they have no firm root. They just acknowledge the truth for a while, but then temptation comes and they fall away. He's describing an unbeliever. The third soil, the seed which fell among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard and and they go on their way and they're choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. You know, I, I remember even dealing with college students and I, you know, I'll say, well, this is the most important thing that you'll ever come to grips with. Well, I don't really have time right now. You know, I, I, I'm so busy and I'm a student and, you know, I'm trying to get a good, you know, cumulative average so I can get that job that I want when I get out. And I just don't have time to examine this. You don't have time not to examine this. And there's always going to be something in life that will make someone busy. And so the worries of the world, sometimes the riches of life, people want to make money, that they don't have time for God. Uh, These are the things that will keep people out of the kingdom of God. But the seed on the good soil, now he's describing a true, genuine believer. These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest, in a good heart, and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. And again, Matthew says some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. They persevere. You're not saved by perseverance, but the one who is saved will persevere. He will not fall away because you cannot undo genuine conversion. So all the way through the kingdom parables of Matthew 13, you have these two groups of people, lost to save, lost to save, bad fish, good fish, and so on, wheat, tear. That's the point of the parable. It has nothing to do with one lost, two carnal, Soil for spirit-filled has nothing to do with that. That was just gross error that was popularized through Man in the Mirror by Pat Morley, a terrible book, just bad theology. He was a good businessman, loved the Lord. I'm not doubting that, but he didn't know his Bible very well. And this is why God says, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you'll incur a stricter judgment. And so he has given a lot of people a false assurance over some of their friends or even over themselves. All right, very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And our next question was emailed to us. This person writes, I am confused concerning Matthew twenty two fourteen. What is the meaning of this verse? Is it a verse that speaks to the Calvinist doctrine of election? Well, uh, you're speaking about the parable of the marriage feast, and it ends with the words, for many are called, but few are chosen. And so Jesus spoke a parable, and he says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Not unable, I might underscore, but unwilling. And that's very, very critical. 
Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat and livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. Kind of goes back to the parable of the soils, doesn't it? The guy, soil number one, who's unwilling and others who just, they pay no attention. Why? Because other things are capturing their attention. They went away, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers. That happened, by the way, in 70 AD and set their city on fire. He's telling a parable here on the Jewish leaders and on the people. And then he said to their slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited, remember in the limited commission as it's recorded in in Matthew's gospel before he extends it to all nations, he said, don't go into the way of the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, go just to the Jews. Why? Because God is a promise-keeping God. And he made some promises to the Jewish people, and that's where he started. And then because of their rejection, he broadens the commission. So about 400 years ago, what we read, it's given actually in five different places in the New Testament at different times. But that time when he met with over 500 disciples on a mountain in Galilee, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He broadens it. And so we've been calling it for 400 years, the Great Commission. So he said to the slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways and as many as you'll find there and invite them in. And of course, if you remember in the parable, one of the fellows shows up and he's not dressed properly. He's invited, but he's not dressed properly. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man who was there not dressed in wedding clothes. And again, there are people... Again, this comes back to the first question of the day and the one that followed of people who make profession of faith but don't possess salvation. And so Jesus will say to those, I never knew you. And, of course, the clothing is a a beautiful illustration used in a number of places all the way through the Revelation, from Matthew to Revelation, of the righteousness that God imputes to the believer. Sometimes it's used in other ways, but most often to imputed righteousness— that unless you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, been given um, wedding garments from him by grace through faith, then God will say, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of feet, feet, uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, so... The Bible uses this term called in a couple different ways. There's a general external call that is given whenever the gospel is preached. So when the gospel is preached, God's knocking at the door of your heart, so to speak. He's calling you. But don't ever think that that you were saved because you first called him. He called you first. And this is really what's pictured in the great golden chain of salvation in Romans chapter 8. The calling takes place before you believe. God takes the initiative. Why? Because as we just pointed out, there is none who seeks God, no, not one. And so in the Garden of Eden, Adam sinned and Adam hid from God. And it was God who came in the midst of the garden. He says, where are you? That's not the voice of a detective. God knew where Adam was. He's omniscient. But God wanted Adam to admit where he was. And so our calling begins with God. In This is Love, John will write. And we covered this again in the Back to Basics series in the first 
handout. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. So don't think for a moment it was your idea to seek the Lord. It was not. It was God's idea. He sought you first. And the only reason you had the idea is because God gave you the idea. So never think that the initiative came out of your depraved, fallen nature because it did not. But please do not think that every man does not have an opportunity to believe. God offers a general call to all men. Isaiah says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Uh, as I live, God will say through the prophet Ezekiel, and I quote this verse in just about every uh, meet the pastor, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather the wicked should turn from his way and live. Jesus, in that great invitation in Matthew 11, said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And so the invitation is to all on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And the revelation is, which we just finished, a verse-by-verse exposition of that verse ends with the word, the invitation to come, the one who's thirsty, let him come without cost. So it begins with God. And and the problem is, is that sometimes man is unwilling. Remember uh, Stephen, when he spoke there on... Uh, to that group of unbelieving Jews in Acts 7, he said, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. Or in John 5, we saw the word unwilling that we just read. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me, and you are unwilling, not unable, unwilling to come to me. So when that general call goes out, if you respond to it, it becomes an in- internal effectual call that leads to salvation. But God has made you a free moral agent and you can resist. So many are called, but not everybody responds. And so this is not a Calvinistic verse. This is just the how salvation works. Broad is the road, wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many are on it. Small is the road, narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few find it. We're out of time. Thanks for joining us today for the Bible line, Walk with Christ. Mm-hmm.